death penalty for a ghost in China, an audio broadcast of the novella by Kim Cancer, copyright 2020, Meth Lab Press. Another fellow teacher, Tony, lived a few doors down from me. He rarely ate with us but would pop into the cafeteria here and there for coffee or fried dumplings. Tony was another ninja, like the Tasmanian, who'd been in China over a decade, and was also a teacher you wouldn't see much of anywhere, aside from his classes. I saw him more than others because I lived near him, and we'd struck up a few conversations in the hallway, became fast friends. He was around two decades older than me, pale as flower and gaunt. His face sort of looked like Skeletor from the old He-Man cartoons. Or like a zombie. Like he'd just jumped out of a coffin. He was cantankerous and pretty far-right, Tony, on the political spectrum, while I'm more in the center, and I didn't share many of his beliefs, such as the kooky conspiracy crap he'd spout. But since there weren't that many other foreign teachers at the school, and since he lived so close to me, we sort of had to be friends. Living in such close confines, if we weren't friendly, at least on a surface level, it would have gotten awkward quickly. At least he read books, which is a rarity in this day and age. I appreciated that about him. He was a thinker and one of the few teachers I'd met who could carry on a conversation, wasn't halfway autistic, too weird, too alcoholic, or a pedophile. Or all those things. He also shared my affinity for exercise, walking, and we went out walking around the track for evening exercise, about two or three nights per week. Something about Tony I'd noticed, though, which was odd, was how afraid animals were of him. How birds would caw and fly away as he neared and feral cats would run in terror at the mere sight of him. Perhaps he bore a resemblance to another foreign teacher I'd heard of, one who'd run around campus, chasing wildly after the campus's feral cats. Stepping foot on the track, I'd begun our walk by telling him more of the area's background I'd learned, and our topic of conversation had soon veered to the pros and cons of the death penalty. The irony of discussing the ethics of the death penalty on the grounds where they'd shoot prisoners wasn't lost on me. To my surprise, Tony was more happy than shocked or dismayed as I rattled off what I'd learned of the place's background. His eyes lit up and he perked up and smiled as I spoke. I told him, bluntly, I don't believe in the death penalty. So the state is saying killing people is wrong, then the same bunch of people kill the person who killed. Murderers killing murderers if you ask me, way too eye for an eye, Old Testament. It'd be better to have them do hard labor for life. Or even to scrub toilets, wipe the asses of invalids, mop up puke, scrape gum off the sidewalks, take customer service phone calls, do all the most horrible things, you know. That'd be a real deterrent. He wasn't convinced. Flattened his lips. Shook his head. He answered back, 
in his glissando, nasal voice, his Boston accent strong, but then you gotta house them, feed them, and the taxpayer is on the hook. Not if you get value from them, I replied, and if they're scrubbing toilets, wiping asses, fighting forest fires, all that, they're creating value. Simply warehousing them in jails is wasteful and murdering them is plain unethical. What if the bastards refuse, he asked, his voice rising, what if they won't do the work? Then you shoot them. Then we're back to square one. I nearly yelled at him, no. You don't shoot them. You do something else. You make their life so unpleasurable that they beg to mop up puke, take customer service phone calls. What's with the customer service phone calls, he asked, curling his upper lip, and thinning his eyes at me. Have you ever called a company, pissed off about your phone bill or whatever, sat on hold for 30 minutes, then screamed your head off when you finally got through to a person? Of course. Who hasn't? Imagine being the poor soul on the other end of the line, getting screamed at, and taking 200 of those sorts of calls in a row. It's like being a public toilet, taking customer service phone calls, working in a call center, everyone just coming in, pissing and shitting on you. He raised his eyebrows, shrugged his shoulders. Somehow, I'm not sure customer service phone calls would bother him as much as it did me, when I did that job, part-time, many years ago, as a struggling college student. Back to the jail thing, he went on, after taking a prolonged, not-so-subtle stare at a female Chinese teacher's rear, you know, I heard about this rapist in Texas, who was robbing young dudes, then raping them up the ass, and they caught him, sent him to jail for 99 years. They sent him to jail, jail. For raping dudes. It sounds more to me like they were doing him a favor. Now he can rape dudes for 99 years. Being in prison is probably like heaven to him, an ass rapist's version of Disneyland. Not me, sir, no, no, no. I know sodomy is a deterrent for me. It's always made me think twice about doing illegal stuff, having to be raped in jail. I can fight but I'm way too skinny to fight off five or six muscle-bound rapists. Look, jail should be terrible. People should be raped and killed there. That way people don't want to commit crimes. They're too scared to commit crimes. That's why the Chinese are more law-abiding. They know how jail is. And Chinese jails are wicked horrible too, wretched, like 20 guys in one room, sleeping on a concrete floor, next to a dirty, stinky squat toilet. In most Chinese prisons, there's no heat, no AC, only one cold water tap for 20 people. There's cockroaches and rats crawling everywhere. And they keep the lights on 24-7 force the prisoners to work hard labor all day and at night they gotta sit still and watch Chinese TV propaganda. It's hell. I paused and shuddered at the thought of jail in China or in any third world country. Third world jails are probably the closest thing to hell on earth, 
and I'm sure the Chinese jails aren't even as horrific as countries further down the Human Development Index. But, Tony, what I don't understand is how anyone who calls themselves a Christian could be a proponent of the death penalty. My eyebrows furrowed, I went on, speaking forcefully, it's an anathema, a gross contradiction to the Bible and to the teachings of Jesus. Tony just shook his head and grinned, coolly, I think it's been too long since you've read the Bible if you think Christians can't kill. Maybe you forgot about the Crusades, too. It's his work, his plan. He's got our numbers. He's got our data stored. Google ain't got nothing on God, man. God giveth and taketh, Kim. It all happens for a reason. And I'm more on the taketh side, to be frank. I'm more of a vengeful God, spiteful Jesus type of Christian myself. And look, the Bible is like the Constitution, it's open to interpretation. As for me, I interpret it like this, that some people are just shit. They're irredeemable. That's why there's the death penalty. That's why there's hell. There's a hell for a reason. We have to remove the scum, the dregs, get rid of them. Or else they'll kill again if given the chance. Look at some of the criminals we have in America. Like the Mafia, fuck the Mafia. They extorted my old man's business for tens of thousands of bucks, bled him for years. Fuck John Gotti. Fuck Sammy the Bull Gravano. Fuck Al Capone. Fuck Tony Soprano. Fuck the Westies, fuck them all. They made for great movies, sure, but, in real life, there's nothing cute or funny about any of them. Fuck the gangbangers too. And fuck the mass shooters. Like James Holmes, the Batman shooter asshole. Why is he alive? He eats and sleeps for free at the taxpayer's expense. At least most of the other mass shooters, like those Columbine pricks, did us a favor and shot themselves. Tony stopped to hack up another wad of spit at the far edge of the bright red track, then hurried his pace, walking in long strides, at a rapid clip. I picked up my speed to match his in a verd, James Holmes is in a tiny cell for the rest of his life, sleeping next to his toilet. Living the rest of your life in a bathroom is a terrible fate, but still not enough of a punishment, particularly for him. Get value from him. Have him doing hard labor. But if he's too weak for that, make him take customer service phone calls. For people pissed off at Netflix. Make him do something. Something terrible. I posited and looked over the same Chinese teacher Tony had scoped as she passed by, power walking, her black spandex pants hugging her full hips nicely. She was not bad. Tony snuck another glance at the teacher's protuberant wiggling rear and said, Nope. Jab a machine gun up James Holmes's ass and pull the trigger. Or shoot him in his face. Oh, even better, put him in a cell with the Texas male rapist. Then shoot them both. Nah, I disagreed. Put James Holmes in a Chinese jail. Make him watch Chinese propaganda shows and eat cockroaches. 
Nah, hand me a gun, hire me for the firing squad. I'll save the taxpayers a bundle, Tony said, before he stopped in his tracks, stepped aside for a breather, wheezed and coughed, then spat out another hefty gob of spit. Then he looked around to see if anyone was close to us. He'd do this before he said particularly offensive things, things that were bad even for him. I guess it was his way of issuing a trigger warning. It really was fortunate we didn't have any politically correct, social justice warrior type people. I couldn't see many of those sticking around for too long in China, anyway, and Mao have mercy, they certainly wouldn't appreciate Tony. When I saw Tony's head panning around, like a radar, saw him smooth his jet black slicked back hair, saw the fire in his eyes, oh yeah, I knew something awful was coming. And it did. Tony, started speaking, and behind him, around him, I saw energy, white flashes, and further off in the oily night's horizon were figures of men with shaved heads, kneeling. A row of them. Like they were in a mosque ready to pray. The white flashes and traces of men in the distance disappeared as he exhaled deeply, readying to speak. He didn't look like he'd seen anything, though, and spoke in a happy-go-lucky voice. I don't know, Kim. I'm a Christian, a Catholic, but I kinda liked George Carlin, the cranky old fart. I also kinda like it when a lot of people die. As long as it's not anyone I know or care about. But where I differ from Carlin is that I think it's God's plan. God does it to remind us of our place. Of the value of time. Plus, there's too many people in the world. China has certainly reinforced that notion. It's an environmental disaster, this place, all these fucking people. That's why they're having these plagues, famines, floods, wars throughout their history. And nowadays it's the air, the cigarettes, the people falling from high-rise buildings, debris from high-rise buildings landing on people below, or the buildings themselves collapsing. And if that doesn't get you, you've got fake medicine, fake vaccine, fake alcohol, poisonous food, and if you survive that, you got the mass stabbers, kindergarten killers, public bus arsonists, car accidents, train crashes and buses driving off bridges. God is cleaning them out. Mopping up the earth, like he does to us all. It's not only God's way of population control, but, admit it, accidents, disasters and murders make for good TV and movies. As much as I hate James Holmes, shooting up a movie theater is, albeit grimly, perfect. It was a classic case of cause and effect. Life imitating art. It was performance art, in a way, you know. Mass shooters, murders, tornadoes, war, terrorists, natural disasters, tobacco companies, shit, even the coronavirus, provide a service to the planet. Entertainment. Fear. Commerce. But, most importantly, it's population control. It's all from God. It is his plan. He is at the controls. So, 
I tell you, Kim, these people, these stinking bastards, these criminals, the executed, they served their purpose. They served God. And they served us. They brought the population down and entertained us, and they themselves were killed. It's a win, win. I asked him if he believed in ghosts or had seen any, had any nightmares. He hadn't seemed affected like the other teachers. I haven't seen shit. I haven't had nightmares. Maybe the ghosts keep away from me for a reason. I don't blame them, I know jujitsu. I'd fucking choke out a bitch ass ghost. Plus, I pray every night. I keep a crucifix in every room. I got Jesus on my side. I know he is with me. I think you're imagining things, Kim, I really do. Ghosts are ideas. Our ideas. Ideas of ourselves. I don't know if ghosts exist as sentient beings, if that's real or possible. But, I tell you, I do believe in energy. Energy that is created cannot be destroyed. There might be paranormal energy, a force left behind. But it doesn't affect me. As far as I'm concerned, most of the criminals killed here were atheists, so they're probably in hell. They didn't accept Jesus. The only ghost I truly believe in is the Holy Ghost. Like I said, you know, it's a win-win, their deaths. Listen, I'm getting winded. Let's go back. The smog is picking up. It's supposed to be gnarly tonight. It's already getting smoggy as shit. Fucking looking like gods up there chain smoking. Again, I heard the voice, the female voice from before, and it whispered into my ear, win, win. My spine tingled, and I felt a lump in my throat. I looked around, for a split second, and saw a hovering face of one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen. I knew it from somewhere. But where? Before I could recall, the face dissolved into a swarm of gnats that buzzed up and dispersed and fragmented into the starless night. There was indeed a heavy smog rolling in, or maybe a fog. In China, it was hard to tell which. Visibility was limited, but again, as we left the track, I could see trace visions, figures of dead men being hauled off on stretchers by prison guards, and soldiers in uniform, carrying guns, their figures melting into the distance, forming into the fog. I'd taken my pills but still I lay awake at night, staring at shadows. I peered out my open window and realized I'd not seen any stars, or the moon, since I'd arrived in China. I could imagine the school's ghosts as gremlins crawling and clawing up into the sky, eating the moon like a cake. Tonight, there were no drilling sounds and my room was silent as death and my mind was racing, a buzz, unable to quiet. I was feeling like an overloaded plane in a turbulent sky, wishing that I'd plummet, crash into sleep. Our building sat on the same area as the prison. I was levitating over their cells, levitating over their graveyard. I was thinking of the men, crammed into the dingy rooms, imagining the torture they'd endured.
the convicts in chains, counting the hours until they were brought out to the guns. Mosquitoes feasting on their flesh. I sensed a vestigial energy, spirits in the air. Tired of staring at the air, mind in void, I rolled over in bed, pawed at my bedside table, grabbed my phone and cradled it in my hands and its blue light cut through the blackness of the room. I surfed the net and noticed an email from the school. It was a stern warning to all teachers and staff not to throw debris of any sort from our windows or balconies after an elderly man, a Chinese teacher's father, was seriously injured by a dog that had been thrown off an upper-story balcony of a campus apartment building. There was no word on the dog's condition. I was beginning to understand more why many of the long-term China expats I'd met were such nihilists. Something of angry ghosts themselves. I looked more into past Chinese death penalty cases at the prison that was here. After a deep dive into Baidu, I found two more notable ones. They were both striking. The first one was of a pudgy girl, a young girl, who'd helped her boyfriend sell meth, and was convicted, sentenced to die. There was a series of pictures of her, and I was shook by her youthful exuberance, a charisma she exuded that leapt off my phone's small square screen. The series of photos showed the girl smiling, eating dumplings with her jailers in the hours before she was to be executed, then the same jailers bringing her out to the execution grounds, and the girl in tears as she was being brought to her death. Seeing her face, sweet as a birthday cake, her cherubic, blushing cheeks, I could feel the anguish, the thumping of her heart. I hoped her spirit was at peace. The next story I read was of a scrawny young guy with a bowl haircut, big glasses, and buck teeth. Only around twenty or so, he was an unemployed loner who'd lived with his parents. He'd been tormented as a child and later, as a young adult, sought vengeance on his middle school, where he'd been bullied. In the article, the young man claimed that he'd been visited by a demon from a video game he'd played, a demon in a dragon robe, with a long beard and high-brimmed hat. The demon had handed him a knife with a gold seal and told him to slay the school children, that the children's souls would go to hell, where the demon and the young man could torture, torment, and punish them forever. The young guy believed in the dream, and had gone over to the school, to the school's front gates, with a knife, and when the school let the kids out, he went on a killing spree, ran amok, and stabbed over ten young girls to death, seriously wounded four others. After the stabbing spree, he dashed off and snuck into an internet cafe nearby, was found hours later, playing the video game on a computer, his hands and clothes stained with blood. The young man was executed, and the video game banned in China. It struck me that he'd gotten away with killing so many in a public place. Wouldn't someone have stopped him? And how did he manage, soaked in blood, to sneak into an internet cafe? A voice spoke to me from the dark. The soft female voice again. It was sweet as honey, the voice, but its words bit. In China, 
They stand. They watch. The bystanders don't usually get involved. They watched the girls get murdered. Are they as guilty as the killer? Do you think? I dropped my phone, bounced up in bed, scanned around the room, yelled, who's there? The voice disappeared. I looked back down at my phone. The page had changed. It was now on a Baidu news story about another execution. Looking at the mugshot under the headline, I knew the face, I knew the person. It was the stunningly beautiful girl I'd read of before, executed here back in 1993. It was her. She was the ghost I'd been seeing. I picked up the phone, read the story. It was a more in-depth article than the one I'd read before. The article explored her upbringing, said she'd had a tough life. Her parents were janitors and were strict, tough on her, forced her to study for hours on end. Her alcoholic father ruthlessly beat her when she got anything less than perfect grades. She'd done well in school and made it to a top university in the province. But her good fortune ended there. She'd had a boyfriend in college who pushed her to sleep with him, then dumped her because he said she was impure for sleeping with him and later forced her, at knife point, to go have an abortion. Then she'd allegedly been raped by her boss at a mining company where she worked as a secretary after college. Then the boss's daughter pressured the girl, under a thinly veiled threat of being fired, to have a sexual relationship with a county tax inspector. The inspector had demanded extortionate bribes and threatened to expose the company's tax evasion, fiscal malfeasance. After being coerced into spending the night with the inspector, the girl snapped. The next evening, when the inspector, the boss, the boss's wife, son, and daughter, as well as three other workers from the company were having dinner in the company's upstairs lounge, the girl rode her motorbike to the company's office, smashed open a back window, poured gasoline into the building and rode off as the trail of flames licked its way to a dozen freshly delivered cooking gas canisters sitting in the hallway and the building exploded in a loud fiery boom. Everyone inside died, including a security guard who'd been asleep at his desk. The girl had been caught on a security camera starting the fire. She was guilty beyond a doubt. Along with her looks catching the public's eye, the case itself was so gruesome and shocking on all levels that it garnered much media coverage. She did nothing to fight or dispute the charges, neither claiming innocence nor pleading guilty. It took only an hour for her to be convicted by the three-judge panel, a year after that, she lost her automatic appeal and days later, she was sent to the firing squad. The company she worked at was only 20 kilometers from the school. And she'd been executed here, where the school's soccer field sits. Looking at her picture, it was hard to believe she'd committed such a crime. Her face was beautiful, I mean, really beautiful, like hideously beautiful. When I gazed at her face it was like the picture was made of knives, carving her image into my mind. Staring at her photo, I audit how pale she was, she was pale as a kabuki dancer, 
and had such delicate features, her round face with such big brown eyes and full, bell-shaped lips, and the cutest little pert button nose. Her straight, raven-black, shiny hair was parted to the right and hung down to her thin, hourglass waist. She was so thin, petite, and fragile-looking, so innocent-looking, like a children's doll. I couldn't see rage in her eyes. I couldn't even see there being malice, rage in her. But, curiously, I also couldn't see even a trace of sadness. It was as if she was there but not there, a portmanteau of beauty and absence. Scrolling down, I saw another picture of her, taken minutes before she was to be shot, and she wore casual clothes, a cotton white blouse, and blue jeans. Only twenty-four, with her face soft as snow, she had the appearance of a young goddess. And, again, she seemed so stoic. She'd been bent to her knees for the camera. And behind her was a handwritten poster, affixed to a wooden stake, saying her name and crime. Shortly after the picture was taken, she was shot in the back of the head. The article stated that the soldier who shot her was said to be tormented. Haunted by what he'd done. He'd said she was the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. In the minutes before he shot her, as they marched to the field, the soldier said he'd gazed at her, saw her expression, her lips hanging open, her face in a look oscillating between sadness, terror, reluctance, and bitter acceptance, and he said that he knew her meaning, the telling message in her eyes, and he knew exactly what she meant when she whispered to him, fragrance vanishes and jade crumbles, before she knelt to accept death. Three months later, her executioner killed himself, in his barracks, shooting himself in the mouth. The company where she'd worked had gone out of business, and on the grounds where its building once stood, there'd been an apartment building to be constructed, but so many accidents kept occurring during its construction that the empty shell, the half-finished concrete shell of the building was abandoned. The land considered to be cursed, the construction project has sat there, unfinished, moldering, for nearly thirty years. I felt barbs of sadness, reading her story. She'd been wronged. Raved. Couldn't have been in her right mind. And who wouldn't have been enraged in her situation? And who could she have gone to? A local rich man like that in China, a tax inspector for the government, with their status, their connections, there'd have been little chance for her to pursue legal recourse. The whole thing was ugly and tragic from every angle. My mind quit racing when the pills kicked in hard, and, drowsy, I wished to jump from the archipelago of insomnia, to dip into the warm sea of sleep, and I wiped my dry eyes with the back of my hand. Do you think I'm beautiful? I always wanted to have a foreign boyfriend. A presence whispered into my ear. The words were carried by a hot wind that warmed and tickled my neck. Then the room started to feel colder. I could see my breath. Jolted. I jumped up out of bed. But I didn't see anyone around. On my phone, though, there was a video image. A moving one. 
Hello. I said curiously, picking up the phone, and I glared down at it, apprehensively, my head cocked back, and my lips pursed. It was her. The girl from the article. Nay how? Said the beautiful face on my phone's screen. My name is Lily. It's nice to meet you. I hadn't opened any video app. There wasn't any box around the image. It'd taken up the entire screen of my phone, the image. I was thinking I'd been hacked. But she sure didn't look Russian, like I'd have expected. I wasn't sure how she'd hacked into my phone, but she had. And it definitely was her. I'd know that face anywhere. Her ghost was alive. I'm Kim, I told her, in a syrupy voice to soothe myself, before sitting back into my bed, nice to meet you, Lily. How'd you get, um, my phone? You're silly. I'm everywhere. But I'm glad you found me. Not everyone believes, she said, and behind her was a bright tunnel of light, the light brighter and whiter than any I'd seen, like thousands of flashbulbs. Do you believe, Kim? She squinted her eyes and asked. Do you believe in ghosts? In me? Sure, I do. I, I, uh, think, you're utterly enchanting. And I want to know your story. Did you do it? Did you murder those people? I can't believe you did. I don't want to believe you did. I had to look away for a second after asking that. And I shifted my gaze towards my window and saw out to the lights of the nearby chemical plant, its golden and silver lights swimming and blinking through the mist of the cold gray night. When I looked back at the phone, she didn't hesitate in her reply. She nodded and blurted out, bluntly, I did. All the air had left my lungs, like a balloon that had been popped. I struggled for a second, gathered myself. She giggled and shrugged her shoulders. Didn't say a word, but her gesticulations were telling. Did you deserve it? Did you deserve to die? I asked, drew in a deep breath. I worried I might hyperventilate, and it started to feel as if shards of broken glass were in my throat. I guess. But I'm not really dead. Am I? In China, we believe a ghost isn't dead. But it will die later. The second death is the final death. The real death. I'm still waiting for it. Did you, know, Kim, that death was a massive release? Did you know that death is the most incredible orgasm you'll ever have? Don't fear it. I'm here, Kim. I'm with you. When you opened your phone, you found me, right? I'm alive in images, in words, in people's minds. When the last person speaks my name, when the files are gone, and I'm deleted, my last picture burned, then I'm dead. That's the second death, the real death. Right? The phone went blank. Shut off. I thought I'd lost her. But she reappeared. Her silhouette next to me, forming into a translucent figure, a body, 
glowing, lying next to me in my bed. She was nude, her slender body, its curves, its peaks, the cleft between her legs, illuminated, in a silver hue. She reached over, touched me, stroked my chest, cupped her hands on my cheeks. Her touch was warm, but her breath was ice cold. She raised her face to mine, puckered her bell-shaped lips, and we kissed, her icy tongue, like a spoonful of ice cream, touching tenderly at mine. Only in a t-shirt and boxers, I broke our kiss and undressed, lay between her legs and inserted myself inside her. I thrust, pushed, swam in. I was a ghost inside myself, a warm corpse, and I pushed into her with the strength of ten men. Her arms lay as a T on the bed, as if she'd been crucified, and she squirmed like an eel under me, panting and gibbering, and when I came, my body quaked, rocked, and shook like a comet hitting the earth, and the room caught on fire, orange flames eating into us, and everything swirl faded to black. When I woke up, I was nude under a cocoon of warm blankets. My phone lay next to me, under the sheets, and was still on, but was displaying a spreadsheet, full of info, facts about the prison, notable convicts it housed. I read over it for a few minutes, then got up, showered, dressed and went to meet Markoba for breakfast before class. I was supposed to be at home this morning, grading papers, but I had to go cover a class for Raccoon Head, who'd been in the hospital with a severe case of food poisoning. Shiba. Markoba and I met in tacit silence at the front of the cafeteria. Today he was dressed in a full dinosaur costume, a T-Rex. Chinese teachers gazed at him, with soft warm eyes, lips stretched into smiles, while they stared at me, curiously, some condescendingly. Chinese teachers gazed at him, with soft warm eyes, lips stretched into smiles, while they stared at me, curiously, some condescendingly. When we sat down to the Lao Wai corner, began our breakfast, a shifty-eyed auntie, sitting nearby, motioned, laughed to her brethren, and mimicked me eating, simultaneously perplexed and amazed that I could use chopsticks. Terrorist Reggie or Reggie the Terrorist, or simply, the Terrorist, was joining us. Terrorist Reggie had coined his own moniker, after his experiences with racism in the States, taking the words back, he'd said. Terrorist Reggie, the 45-ish Arab, the math teacher, the birdman with the big bald head and big hook nose and bulging eyes that almost leapt out of his head. Buddha bellied and bald and with long eyelashes and man tits, his semi-feminine features made the terrorist look sort of like a pregnant woman with cancer. The terrorist always brought his own fork and knife to the cafeteria. Something about hygiene, he'd mumbled. The terrorist, carrying his metal tray of fruit and bread, hard-boiled eggs, walked over to meet us, tracing his footsteps on the floor as if he were walking a tightrope. He didn't look so hot. His face was pale as milk. He sat down to the foreigner table, next to a pair of quiet, 
clean-cut young teachers. Chunky, and with androgynous features and haircuts, they looked like cult members. The weird Utah twosome had invited everyone to their apartment for cookies and Bible study. The terrorist nodded his hellos and then spoke in a soft, raspy voice, Bro, I was having crazy dreams last night. I was trapped in a fire, in my classroom, and I couldn't get out. All my students. They were in prison uniforms, and the classroom was a factory. The students were burning, they were screaming and crying and whimpering. It was the most realistic dream I'd ever had, he paused, drew in a deep breath, exhaled, and went on, I woke up screaming, drenched in sweat. Chuck the Canuck, the walrus, was there, and he also looked of shit. He'd been listening intently, and then spoke up, which was rare for him. He was usually pretty taciturn, morose. His Toronto accent colored his vowels and gave his words punching power. I too had a nightmare. A satanic one. I was in a plane, and after liftoff, it began to descend, fast, plunging to the ground. Everyone on the plane was shrieking and bracing for impact. I looked out the window and saw the ground was becoming bigger and bigger. Then there was a crazed man, eh, cursing in Cantonese, running and splashing petrol down the aisle of the plane, flames following behind him. The cabin was filling with smoke. Then I awoke. I was also dripping sweat like I'd just stepped out of a sauna. The pair looked to me, in anticipation of a similar nightmare, a tale of fire, death. But I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to share my, uh, encounter with the ghost. Which I wasn't sure was a dream, hallucination, paranormal, or simply abnormal. I did, however, horripilate, and then felt like ice water had been thrown at me when I suddenly recalled what I'd just read on the spreadsheet. Reg, you know why they closed the prison? I asked. He just stared blankly at me, shrugged his shoulders. Because part of it was used as a factory, one part for producing Christmas lights, the other for making lighters. The side with the lighters caught fire, burned alive all the convicts in there, fifty people, at least, died. Reg grew a shade paler, listening to this, and appeared to lose his appetite, stopped picking at the fruit on his tray. Chuck, I said, shifting in my chair to face him, there was an incident in Guangzhou, years ago, where a guy, a disgruntled airline worker, from here in Henan, boarded a plane, with a canister of gas, set fire to the aisle, shortly after takeoff, and the plane crashed, everyone on board died. He'd told his brother of his plans, over the phone, the night before, from a payphone outside a restaurant. Though his brother said he didn't believe it, thought it was just drunken ramblings. Still, the police charged him in the case, made an example of him for not telling, probably also to quell public anger, and, anyhow, he was put to death here. You guys must be reading into the history of this place as much as me, I said, and slugged down a big gulp of red-hot SARS coffee. 
The coffee was strong, bitter, just as one would expect of something that came from an animal's ass. Expecting both to fill me in on their research, the pair sat with wandering, hazy eyes, and parted lips. An uneasy silence ensued. The terrorist shook his head, said meekly, No, I haven't been reading about it. Me neither, said Chuck, and since I've been here, I've had night terrors, but none as vivid as last night. Markoba slammed his fist down on the table, rattling it, and cried out, It's haunted, this place. The ghosts are speaking to us. Communicating through sleep. We're on their beds, we're walking in their graveyard. We're shitting over their graves, our septic tanks buried in their cemetery. And their methods, the methods the ghosts are using to communicate, it's as if they wish to negotiate with guns pointed at our heads. His tone then softened, his eyes squinted, and his voice lowered to a whisper. Steam purled up from his collar. I'm going to sacrifice two live chickens tonight, one for you each, I'll say your names in my spell. Let me know if you want the blood. I've been drinking chicken blood mixed with rum. I've not had a haunting in my apartment yet, he said, clutching and kissing the silver crucifix that hung from his neck, before hurrying off, walking hastily out of the cafeteria. Tony passed by him, and the two nodded hellos. As Tony approached, the cult members quickly excused themselves and left. They'd always avoided Tony, for whatever reason. Tony, flashing a toothy, sinister grin, was in a far better mood than us, and he duck-walked, sat down to our table, cupping a hot coffee in his hands, humming the melody to Bruce Springsteen's glory days. Tony wasn't much of a breakfast eater. Tony asked, what's good, gentlemen? What's the current topic of conversation? Dreams, replied the terrorist, warily. Tony's posture slackened. He sipped his coffee and muttered, dreams, hmm, and fell silent, scratching his head, glancing around the room furtively. A few flakes of dandruff fell softly from his scalp, like tiny snowflakes. Did you have any disturbing dreams last night? I asked, covering my mouth while I chewed on an apple slice. Well, actually, I did, he said, speaking in a low, scratchy voice, I had a wacky, wild one. I was in the Cultural Revolution and was wearing a dunce cap and my students had used blinking Christmas lights to tie me to the podium in the front of the classroom. They were dancing circles around me, were throwing fruit and stationery at me, yelling stuff like rightist and foreign trash, and then I woke in a cold sweat, but was freezing in my apartment. My throat's been killing me, too, the whole morning. Damn it, I'm thinking these nutty dreams are like a virus up in here, now maybe I'm catching it. Or not. I did watch a documentary about the Cultural Revolution, so that could explain it. I believe more in Freud than in ghosts. Tony looked us over, noticed the grim mood and inquired, What's with you fellas? 
Why the long faces? Casper, Freddy Krueger still after you bastards. A collective grunt amongst us could be heard. Tony's lips parted, his mouth opening, probably to hurl more insults, but I cut him off, politely as possible, and told him, this place housed prisoners during the Cultural Revolution. There were teachers, college professors, intellectuals given the death penalty, sent here for counter-revolutionary crimes, subverting state power and treason charges. Last night, we all saw things from the place's past. The ghosts are trying to talk to us, tell us something, but we don't know what. I'd expected Tony to doubt the verity of my statement. But, instead, he bobbed his head in concurrence. Oh, if they're real, I bet you they want us gone. Especially us, the foreigners. The living certainly want us gone, just look around, he panned around the room, jutted his chin towards our Chinese co-workers, many of whom were staring at us, a few with the eyes of deer, but most with the eyes of tigers. They think we're snakes, he continued, but I don't care. I don't care one iota what they think of me. To live in China, these days, especially, you can't have many feelings. Honestly, I hate China. I hate its people, how greedy, racist and vapid they are. Once you've met one, you've met about all of them. Yeah, yeah, I know, it's not their fault, they're brainwashed, programmed, yada yada, and a few are alright, especially the younger ones or really old ones, the dinosaurs, but, what the fuck, the spitting and hacking loogies everywhere, the pushing and shoving and line cutting in the subway. I mean, you gotta fight your way in and out of the subway. Bastards won't even let you out when the doors open, people all rushing in like escaped zoo animals. They even smoke in elevators. Who the fuck smokes in a damn elevator? They smoke everywhere. Look, there's a chef over there smoking in the corner of the school cafeteria. Tony nodded his chin toward a near dwarf of a chef, a small middle-aged Chinese man in a pointy white hat. The chef had a face like a baseball glove and was standing in the corner of the cafeteria, puffing away, nonchalantly, on a cigarette. The chef noticed our attention and sneered at us. Tony paused, pulled out a tissue from his pocket, coughed up a harsh wad of phlegm and spit into the tissue in his cupped hands, then balled the tissue up and set it on the table. Then he continued his venting, the words pouring from his mouth like lava. The grannies letting their kids shit on the streets, right in front of public bathrooms. I once saw a two-year-old being held up to shit over a garbage can, right in a grocery store, I mean, at least he didn't shit on the floor, but still. What kind of fucking people? I can see how this place gave the world the coronavirus, the fucking lack of proper hygiene. There's not even soap and hot water in the bathrooms. They fancy drinking the hot water, interjected a porky ginger, a freckle-faced middle-aged Brit sitting nearby, whose name I didn't know, and whose dark circles under his eyes made him look like a red panda. 
Tony cringed and went on, they could have really benefited from being colonized more. Just look at Shanghai compared to the rest of them. Or maybe if the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom had lasted, taken over the country. If they were Christians. If they had God instead of Mao. If they had Jesus instead of just money. But no, sadly, not. That's its whole history, though, China. Fucking China, it gets better, then there's a new emperor who trashes it, or it goes to war, everyone starves, then it gets better, then, ack, fucking rinse and repeat. It sucks. Even reading blogs, books about China, especially about or by Westerners in China, an American bum in China, videos on YouTube by Seamilk and Winston, crap like that, it's not satisfying. It's like eating fast food. Hell, everything about China is like fast food. It looks great in the pictures, but when you get the real thing, it only disappoints. There's nothing satisfying about China. It only gives you a quick fix, but afterwards you feel sick, empty, disappointed, and angry. Except Peter Hessler, I gotta say. He's the only one who gets it. He'd thrown up air quotes around the word gets. Then took a sip of civet shit coffee, panned around the room venomously, and continued, but overall, overall, it's shit, it's all shit. I hate it. I hate China. I only stay for the cash. There's no other reason to be here. There's no culture. If you want authentic Chinese culture, the 5,000 years of history, all the cool shit, you go to Taiwan. They're the keepers of the flame, the Republic of China, not these commie clowns. All the culture here was destroyed by Mao and his lackeys, the Red Guards. It's dead. This whole place is a bunch of ghosts. It's ghost cities. Ghost people. There's nothing here. Especially for us foreigners. I mean, what is there in China, for us? For foreigners? They don't really want us. You can't have citizenship. You only get a stupid temporary green card if you're a basketball player asshole like Stefan Marbury, or if you can grease the right palms. No one stays. Everyone leaves. Even the rich people, the rich Chinese, they leave too. Anyone smart leaves. Everyone hightails it out of this shithole. And why would you even want to put roots down here? You wanna get held hostage like those Canadians? Buy an overpriced concrete box of an apartment that crumbles or collapses in 10 years. Not to mention you can only lease land from the fucking government. You can't own shit. It's a horrible, terrible place, a high-tech, dystopian shithole, and everything about it sucks, except the money, a handful of nice people, and the bullet trains, oh, and the dumplings. Now those, the dumplings, those, now those are bitching. And the lack of political correctness, cut in a plump neck beard, sitting at the end of the table, wearing a faded black-green Bay Packers hoodie, the neckbeard's eyes popping wide as he spoke.
I couldn't remember the neckbeard's name but always winched at his foul-smelling breath. All right, yeah, the lack of PC bullshit, yeah, I'll give you that. But, like, still, altogether, fuck China. And fuck the ghosts. I don't give a fuck about the ghosts. If they're real, the ghosts, fuck them too. They're not scaring me off, the fucking commies, or the fucking ghosts. I've only got another few years to work before I escape to the Philippines or Thailand or Cambodia, anyway, you know. Shit, I hope the place is haunted. I hope it scares away other teachers from coming. I hope China starts another plague. I hope it keeps getting worse and more racist and xenophobic, scares more foreigners away. It keeps my job more secure. That young and handsome 23-year-old kid who can sing, dance, and play guitar, he'll go to Vietnam instead. Fucking Ryan Gosling looking ass motherfucker. Tony chugged down his rat shit coffee. Bade farewell. Gentlemen, he said, raising to his feet and sauntering off to his class. While he certainly was uncouth and cagey, the man did have a sense of equanimity to him if nothing else, remaining calm, stiff as a corpse, even when ranting. And at least he dressed well, I thought. Unlike most of the school's teachers, Chinese included, who wore smart casual or even t-shirts, jeans, or sweatpants to class, Tony was in a three-piece suit. Every workday. He'd been in Thailand before, he'd said, had picked up the habit, spoke of its importance, the face it gave, how much the Asians appreciated appearance. The advantage of dressing even smart casual. The terrorist, walrus, ginger, neckbeard, nor I said a word after Tony left, just looked down at our phones. Suddenly I was hungry as a horse and scarfed down the remainder of my breakfast, in big heaping bites, then left for class. <laughs>